You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now, a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI, the best AI protection comes from having the best data. Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash zero trust AI. Hi, and welcome to SpyCast. From the secret files of the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C., I'm Dr. Vince Houghton, the museum's historian and curator. Every week, the museum brings you interesting conversations with authors, scholars, and practitioners who live in the world of global espionage. Join us as we take a closer look at the secret world of intelligence. We are joined today by Cheryl Schenberger, who is the director of the National Declassification Center at the National Archives. She was, and is, the first director in the history of this organization. She came to the National Archives in 2010 from the intelligence community, where she served both as an analyst and a desk officer. She has also worked closely with the National Archives, the intelligence community, and Department of Defense agencies to coordinate review of historically valuable records that contain CIA information. She also led CIA's declassification review efforts at the National Archives. As a declassification program manager at CIA, she spearheaded efforts to improve processes that resulted in more efficient release of information. Prior to working in the declassification field, Ms. Schenberger served as a branch chief in the CIA Counterterrorism Center between 2001 and 2003, as a desk officer with the CIA Crime and Narcotics Center between 2000 and 2001, and as a senior aid imagery analyst for the National Imagery and Mapping Agency between 96 and 2000. Thank you, Cheryl, for taking the time to talk to us here at the International Spy Museum. I'm happy to be here. So let's kind of work our way a little bit through the declassification process, because there might be many people out there, and me included. I, I went through this when writing my dissertation because I focused on things that were considered secret at one point, and many of them were still classified. And we do have an audience that is full of students and people who are either studying uh, intelligence history in school or writing dissertations or historians themselves that really kind of wonder about how this process takes place. Let's start from the very beginning. As I mentioned in the introduction, you are the first director of the National Declassification Center. What was the impetus behind the creation of your position? Wasn't FOIA enough? Why do you need someone like you at National Archives? Well, this had been talked about for quite some time, so no one should think that the NDC, National Declassification Center, stood up in 2010 without a lot of preparation, without a lot of discussion. Agencies for years had had various representatives who said, we really do need to find a way where we can all work together. What people may not realize is that agencies all want to review and release 
proper information. No one wants to hold something that's not that's not still sensitive. They, they, they have as much reason to let it go as you as a student have for wanting to read it. So they all knew we needed to get on the same page and get this work out, get this information out. There was no way, funding-wise or resource-wise, for one particular agency to take the lead. So all the agencies sort of did their own thing. Once various executive orders were enacted, they had to kind of fulfill what an executive order said they had to get done when it came to declassification. So we flash up now to EO13526. EO13526 is the one that implemented the National Declassification Center. And the real purpose, there's several purposes listed, but the real purpose was to coordinate between all of the agencies and act as kind of a clearinghouse. So if the material is turned over to the National Archives as permanent historical records, which is what agencies do on a regular schedule, which is what agencies do, the National Archives then can coordinate the review and release of those records. The piece of this that's important is that within any particular document, there may be four agency equity holders there. So you could have a Department of State cable, mm -hmm. and within that cable, you're talking about an Army operation, or you're talking about an intelligence operation, or whatever it might be there. And it's, so it's affecting three or four agencies. Those agencies own their information. National Archives does not own right. their information. So that means these agencies get to weigh in and say, wait a minute, no, 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 you can't release this, or yes, this is fine, it's no longer sensitive, we're good with that. So the center is designed to coordinate all of that. When we stood up, we had 350 million pages still sitting in the National Archives at College Park that all the agencies need to weigh in on. Right. In five years, we took care of that. Wow. So now we work on what gets accessioned in, meaning what gets turned over to College Park that's a permanent historical record that you or any researcher, any professor, any uh, private citizen that's interested in some of this material, you know, from Vietnam to World War II to Korea to whatever, mm -hmm. 25 years old and older is the rule. That's when agencies have to turn it over. And that is like the biggest difference with FOIA, because for FOIA, you can FOIA any age. Mm -hmm. For this particular program, it's called automatic declassification. Lest you think automatic truly means automatic. Well, we're going to uh, certainly get into that, because uh, there's been things much, much older than 25 years that we do not know a whole lot about. Um, let me let me kind of jump in here. Absolutely, because I will ramble otherwise. And you brought up some stuff that I want to kind of dial down on a little bit. One, one is this idea that you, you talk about a, a, like a document that has multiple agencies attached to it. Um, it. It's not a majority rule when it comes to declassification too, right? If State Department's like, sure, go ahead, and DOD's like, sure, go ahead, but NSA says, no, 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 we need to keep this classified, they kind of veto the whole issue there, right? That's indeed correct. That's why we like to have redaction or sanitization. Uh, what you find is for the 25-year program, agencies can – pardon the expression, kill a document based on their sensitive equity. And it could be a 50-page document, and they only have information in one paragraph, and they've killed that entire 50 pages. And only that one agency cares, and maybe three others that have information there don't care. They say it's not that sensitive. But yes, it's kind of like... You know, when you get a divorce and the one person who says he wants a divorce wins, even if the other person says they don't want mm -hmm. one, it's that person that wins. This is the same thing with right. D-Class. So if NSA, we'll use them as our whipping post. If mm -hmm. NSA says, no, this is still sensitive, it's SIGINT, then we must hold it for them. 
if we have a redaction capability, meaning an online kind of, you know, black it out type of thing, then we can take out their information that satisfies them, and we can still get 49 pages out to the public. That's your ideal situation. Is that how the process works where somebody vetoes something and you go, okay, what, what do you need in order to let this be released? Like, That's part of it. It depends on how in the weeds you can get on a project. So if indeed we go through 10 million, 20 million pages a year, obviously we can't get down right. into the weeds for every page. That's just not, no one has the resources or the capability for that. So you pick certain collections, certain series of records that are the most interesting to people, maybe ones that have been requested by the public. Right. And they say, wow, I'm really interested in the Pueblo. Let's use that one. Remember, this is 25 years old and older historic. Mm-hmm. So we say, okay, let's see what we can do on that. Agencies, you have information here. Can we just redact what you think is still sensitive? Uh, Understand that they don't just choose sensitivity out of the blue saying, we think that's important. They have to have guidelines that are approved by an interagency panel that approves declassification guidelines. So assuming they're following what they're allowed to, to pull and what they're not, then we offer them a redaction strategy so they can hold out what is truly, truly sensitive. What I have found, frankly, when I do a special project, most agencies will try to release as absolutely much as they can. Okay. Well, that's, that's counterintuitive, right? It is totally. It's in- interesting to me that it seems as though people believe that many agencies, and we'll just beat on CIA or DIA or any of the intel, you know, the, the sneaky intel agencies, so they think, oh, well, they have, no, they have no reason to release anything. They don't let anything go, blah, blah, blah. Well, that's just not true. Some of the um, biggest releases come through a CIA release program, a review and release program. So they are our friends as much as Department of State, as Air Force, as Department of Energy. I mean, Department of Energy equities, you yourself would know, those are very important. Atomic energy is mm-hmm. important. Nuclear is important. And that becomes a thorn in our side sometimes because we have to screen for that important information. Right. But it's real, it is really important, and it is really sensitive. And so we have to be conscious and work well together so that we protect what's really sensitive and then don't protect what's not. I right. will fight an agency in my office who says they want to hold something, and that's what we do in NDC. We argue is this really sensitive? If they've got a good reason and they can tell me why and there's circumstances for it and they have the proper guidelines approved, then, of course, we're going to hold it for them. I mean, there's a lot of argument, and and whether it's political or not, it might be, but about overclassification, about, you know, Mm -hmm. things that that shouldn't be classified, they'd have no real secretive value. And then there are arguments, on the other hand, for how would you know what actually needs to be classified? I think that's where potentially the conspiracy theorists come out and say, well, the people in charge of classification are the ones that get to determine what you get to know and what you don't know, and they're, you know, they're, you know, overclassifying things or underclassifying things when it comes to what they want released and what they don't, right? So, what would you say to somebody that says, "Well, the CIA is only going to agree to release what makes it look good," or it's only going to, you know, that's why we don't know about all the CIA has been running around killing everybody or putting fluoride, fluoride, for, you know. We, we almost want to, in the, in the museum, to have a little roll of tinfoil so people can make hats sometimes because you do have these people coming out of the woodworks saying, well, you're, we get it all the time in the museum, right? Your museum's just a front for the CIA. Like, no, 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 we're not. But like, what, what, there's an obvious argument, I think, against this, but I'm, I'm just making stuff up because I don't know any better. But you certainly do. What is the argument to be said that the CIA, the NSA, these agencies aren't just releasing 
what they can to shape public perception of their particular agencies. So there's really no way that I can convince you or anybody else. So I, I don't even worry about that part, honestly. Um, I can tell you that there are guidelines in place, there are legal ramifications that agencies are directed that they cannot hold anything because of embarrassment, okay. for example. I can tell you that when I first started doing review in 2003, that was in the handbook. It was spelled out for the agency, for these reviewers. You cannot hold it for embarrassment. You cannot hold it because you think it's sensitive. You can only hold it because these guidelines, which have been vetted, which have been discussed, which have been bandied back and forth by a lot of experts, that's what's telling us it's sensitive. So the agencies all follow that kind of a rule. I don't expect everyone to understand that or to even accept it. It's kind of like uh, when we talk about JFK records. I'm going to go ahead and introduce that because that's important to people, and, and I totally get that. But so much was declassified and released already. Right. What's coming up may not be what people want. It may or may not. I can't right. comment because it's not in my program. I'm simply saying that the agencies have tried to release as much as they can, and they're not holding it because, oh, this means this or that. It, there are firm guidelines. Right. There are interagency panels that decide those guidelines. CIA doesn't even sit on one of the no. panels. So, you know, while they get to weigh in, they're not necessarily a principle there saying, right. well, this is acceptable or not. They're getting argued with by people from National Archives, by people from Justice. So it's not a, you know, an easy process where someone can say, I don't like that, so you can't let that go. No, that doesn't work at all. So, so then what is, what is the process then for the documents that are over 25 or 50 or 75 years old? Uh, a lot of, I mean, look, when I grew up, even before I knew anything about this, the, the idea was uh, over a certain age or when everybody's dead, you can eventually release these documents. But that's not necessarily the case in certain circumstances. Like what would, hypothetically, or you can even talk about a specific case, what would be the criteria for not releasing uh, documents, information that's, let's say, over 50 years old uh, that would automatically be declassified otherwise, but there's some stuff that isn't. Like, what, what kind of criteria would there be to prevent that from happening? So to reassure you, that criteria is spelled out in the executive order. Okay, so it's in print. Mm -hmm. So people know they have something to, to look at, a guideline that's in print that they have to follow. Um, but just informally. Um, you cannot always go by age. And I, and I say this because... Various cultures have very long memories. And if you worked with one of their people, you know, back in 1920, they could know that that family is associated with that up until it's 2015. And that shouldn't be very sensitive now, should it? Well, it is right. if you want to protect that family. So when it comes to human especially, you have to really be sensitive. When it comes to method, you right. still have to be sensitive because some of those methods, even even secret writing that we let out a few years ago, woohoo, secret writing, and it's using, you know, what, lemon juice right. and, you know. Uh, but that was a 1918 document. That was the oldest, and right. it, it was released, and we were all very pleased about that. But that was a method. Right. It was still a current method in some places because that's what they use. They don't have the, the uh, technology that we have in the Western world necessarily. So we have to be conscious of that sort of thing. It's important to not always judge it by, well, that was World War II, so we can let it all go. Right. Now, I'll tell you that there are times when I absolutely do look at something and say, how old is that? Oh, good gracious, that was before I was born. Yeah. Who cares? Move it along. But I do that who cares, tongue-in-cheek, but I've read it, and I've decided you're right. That's just not sensitive anymore. 
FOIA and privacy is based sometimes on the fact the person's dead, so we no longer have that right to privacy, and that's something that we it's a little bit different part of the program. Well, and I ran into this when I was doing my own research, and I completely understand this concept. I was looking for a letter from 1942, and I'm like, why can't I get a single letter from 1942? And it turned out that the letter talked about plutonium production in it. And it's, it's not, and I go, all right, well, that's fine, but we don't produce plutonium this way anymore. But it's like, well, other people might, right? You know, this is very basic. This is something where Al-Qaeda might go, oh, this letter tells us how to make plutonium in a very basic way. And so I do understand that concept. It can be incredibly frustrating. It's frustrating, and it's good for you to be sympathetic that way because that is absolutely the case. Sometimes you really have to put yourself into a whole different role and see that 1942 document a little bit differently Mm -hmm. than you and I might see it as just, oh, it's 1942, for God's sake, my parents were there. You know, who cares? When when I read the number, and the the number I ran into when I was researching this was that when when you took over, there was 352 million pages, which you've already said, um, and, and a lot of people are like, all right, well, there's plenty of technology you can use nowadays to, to classify this information and to read through it quickly. There doesn't seem to be any in this case. Like how, this is really old school sitting down and going. Now, you don't see this in, in, in podcast world, but just the look and the, sh- the, the agreement on Cheryl's face tells you everything you need to know. I mean, how in the world did you get through all this? Because there's not just that problem, but... As you're working through this, new stuff is coming in at the same time. Can you talk a little bit about the process that, that got you through this information? I am so proud of the process. I, I, can't, I cannot emphasize enough how important it was for a lot of agency representatives to come together in a room and come up with this process. But that is exactly what happened. It took about six months or so. You can imagine bureaucracies being as they are. That's pretty good, yeah. And everyone having their own way of doing it, and that's that part I was showing you with the process. Right. So the fact is they all agreed we had to do certain things with these pages. We all agreed that there was no way that we could look at every page that was stored in the National Archives. When I came in, we didn't even know how many pages were stored in the National Archives that were classified. There was no real data gathering capability. And that's not a reflection on NARA at all. That is just the way that it is when you're in a hard copy world. And you had different groups of people capturing different pieces of information, but not in a consistent sort of way. So in five years, four years, as we came along, not only did we start capturing all the data on this material, we started to really get our hands around it. So we were able to get us down to how many pages and pretty much get it as exact as possible. Our metrics were always a snapshot in time at that particular time because as you get to another series, you'd say, oh, there's really only two documents in that box. I thought there were 50. Not until you open it. So that's your old-fashioned way of opening a box and truly looking at those dusty pages and making decisions on those. In the future, that won't be the case. So now we're still dealing with hard copy, with textual. There is no way to digitize 352 million pages. At least, at least I can assure you that NDC does not have that budget. Right. So we've had to do everything in that old-fashioned hard copy way. In future, electronic records won't be like that. So you can use some of new technology to figure out what's sensitive and not. Maybe do some searches against it. We're all familiar here with the various search engines. Mm -hmm. Well, there's ways of applying that technology to electronic records. And so it's going to be a little, I think, a little easier. Way more pages because you know email, lots of email. But easier in that you don't have to put your hands on every single piece. Well, I was going to throw a question out to you about 
disparities between agencies. The idea that mm-hmm. I know when I've done my work at, at, at College Park Archives, where I spent half of my life, uh, because I did intelligence-related stuff and military-related stuff, but I did a lot of different agencies, right? I was looking at the DOE. I was looking at OSS, at State. I was looking at the Department of the Army. And they all had their very wonderful different ways of doing things when it came to uh, archives and how they put their, their information together. And then, of course, CIA has their own electronic database mm-hmm. called CREST, mm-hmm. which is wonderful in its own right, but at the same time, the CIA is almost curating what kind of information is available to you electronically. So is that an issue you run into also where you have handling procedures from different agencies that are different and maybe not as good as others? Or is that just something where you take everything and you kind of dive into it regardless of agency? Both those things. So um, it's very important for us to work collaboratively. And so I certainly don't cast aspersions on anyone's methodology before it gets to me. You don't need to call anybody out. (laughs) (laughs) I wouldn't, even if you asked me to, because that's just not the way we work here. The center is only as good as the center. So the more people that work together, the better. And no one, they know working with me, no one ever gets in trouble, called out, or otherwise pointed at as not being helpful. That's not how we work. I'm very positive. That just doesn't work for me at all. So, however, some agencies do a better job than others before the material gets to the National Archives. One of the things we did institute not long after we stood the center up was kind of a checklist so that when agencies are going to turn their records over to National Archives, they have to have done certain things with each series, and they have to certify that they did those things. And one of the things they have to certify is they've done their page-level review for Kyle Lott, which is restricted data, formerly restricted data. That's your DOE equities, your nuclear equities. Mm -hmm. They have to certify that they did that. And they have to say that they've also identified other agencies' information within their records. We don't take it otherwise. We don't have the room for them to do an original primary review. Mm -hmm. They have to do that on their own turf, on their own time, before they turn them over to us. And that's making the turnover better. It's giving us material in way better shape than it was before. Not only that, the reviewing agencies have had a lot more baseline training. They work a lot more with each other, so they kind of know what's sensitive. They can see, you know, kind of get what other people's equity is and what's important and what's not. We foster training as well through NDC because if you have a a smart workforce, you're going to get a way better product. And so we're getting better products now coming into us before we even have to just open those boxes and jump in. So you used the phrase during what we just said, talking about each agency does it in their own way and use it in their own time. Is that the real limiting? You don't have control over what, how fast things get to you. It's basically once they're at the NDC, then you kind of take over. Well, agencies have record schedules that are approved. Okay. It's approved between National Archives and, and that agency. So they have to turn their permanent historical records over at a certain time. Okay. And it's approved. It's agreed to. Where it comes to us is when once it gets to College Park, then it becomes under our purview, and then we deal with the classified in that case. And so every year, a certain amount of pages are turned over to the National Archives at College Park. I guarantee that within the next year after that, we will get through the quality assurance on those pages, and so they'll be available to the public. And we talked a little bit about how you prioritize some of these these documents. Actually, you have a very specific laid-out prioritization plan, um, and I found it very interesting. You, you have There's basically three levels of prioritization. 
The first is uh, the high public interest, which you already talked about, the things that a lot of people are interested in wanting to want to know about. Second is likelihood of declassification. And third is resources required to complete declassification. Am I making this up, or am I, is this actually the prioritization plan that you work under? So that's all wet. Um, that was a great idea okay. before we stood up, and it is a really good idea. And there's bits and pieces that are, are totally legitimate. What happened, however, the ground truth, as you will, is within about a year or more of the NDC stand-up, once we were getting into that 352 million pages that had been there for a really long time, and we thought it was 418 million at one time, and we learned it wasn't, that was all through opening the boxes, we realized that these agencies hadn't all consistently done the review for restricted data, formerly restricted data, and that just threw all the prioritization right out the window. At that point... We still had a deadline. The executive order, presidential memorandum that accompanied the executive order gave us a December 30th, 2013 deadline to get through this material. So we still had to get through it, in spite of government shutdowns, by the way, I'd like to say. So we still had to get through it. How are we going to do that? So we ended up pulling together a new process, pulling the agencies together, because I'm really big on leveraging all the agencies and their resources, and they started working on that identification of DOE information, even in records that were not their own. Mm. So you had CIA, Department of State, U.S. Air Force, working on Navy records, all to look for restricted data, formerly restricted data, and also if they there were some missed referrals. And the re- missed referrals that they were allowed to pick up were human intelligence and WMD. Because those are really, when you think about of all right. the possibilities, those really are the most sensitive, let's be honest. Okay. So they were able to do that. So that had to happen by about year two of the NDC, where we had to take a whole, about half of that backlog, that $352 million, that really hadn't had the review that everybody thought it had already had and do it from scratch. So this, this question just occurred to me, and you, you mentioned the idea that the, the idea behind the NDC had been fermenting for a while. Could you even remotely do your job before, the, before 2004, before the ODNI was stood up, before the intelligence community with a capital I and a capital C was created to where these agencies are kind of mandated now to work together? Could, would it have been incredibly difficult for you to do what you do today without essentially a government-required cooperation between these intelligence agencies? You know, I don't think so. And, you know, maybe I just have a very high opinion of myself. So I believe that things are personal-driven. I think our relationships are what drive our work. And so, therefore, if you put people together who really have a common mission and they respect each other and they value each other, and you make it something that they can do together, and you don't give them ridiculous deadlines they can't possibly meet, although deadlines are a good thing, percentages are a good thing, but sometimes you can be really outrageous mm-hmm. with it. So if you think of all of those things and you're reasonable and you get in a room and you talk, I believe great things can happen. So whether there was a, a coordinated IC or a coordinated DOD, you still had, even within D.C., individuals in charge of Navy, Army, you know, CIA, DIA, all those individual 20 more, 30, 40 agencies with declassification authority that we needed to work with individually, not just one person saying, all these agencies are going to cooperate with you. Mm-hmm. 
I'm waving my wand. No, 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 that doesn't work. I needed each leader around the table, each working leader. I don't mean the higher-ups. No, 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 no. I mean the people who are really going to do the real work. You know, sit around that table, and we all know what we want. We know what we have to do. What's our reason for doing it? We all have a common mission. We all believe that this material is historical. We all believe in the American public's right to know. Everybody believes that. There's just no question. And, And when I took the job... It was made very clear to me by the other agencies that they were just delighted. They just absolutely supported it. There was no question. There was no, oh, God, we're going to undermine her every step of the way. No, 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 no. It was nothing like that. I made parish calls. I went and visited agencies. I talked to people. I brought them in. We talked about their records. We talked about how we wanted them to work on other people's material. I mean, think about that. I mean, and they were, okay, tell us what you want us to do. Well, was, you came you came from CIA doing basically your job at CIA. Mm-hmm. So you're you're now talking to the person that basically replaced you at CIA, and and so you would think that you had the same mentality. So I I, I almost found that surprising. And then thinking about, it, I'm like, well, that makes a lot of sense because you know these these are agencies that are producing people like you. You know, you're not you're not a crusader academic like me or somebody that wants I want access to everything. I'm I'm you know I'm annoyed when some things are redacted. I mean I. Like I had moments at archives where I was flipping through, <laughs> flipping through a wonderful document where it would be a letter saying, "Dear Bob, redacted, sincerely, Bill." Or, or when I'm flipping through a document and I turn the page and it says the next 197 pages redacted in full, and you wonder how people don't go bonkers in that. But at the same time, uh, you, on the other side, you understand why some of this stuff needs to be declassified. Or declassified and declassified. But the good thing, too, is now um, we have someone, uh, an NDC person now in the reference room part-time. Her job is to adjudicate requests like that. So what I mean by that is she's not going to wave a wand and say, oh, yeah, you can have it because I like your looks. No, no, no. But she's going to be able to tell you, well... We can send this through our process. We can take another look at it. Maybe it's due for a re-review. Remember, things get re-reviewed. Nothing can stay classified forever. There is an absolute. Some things, they have to go eventually. So she can help us do that. That's why she's in there. That's why we take requests through our email box. What do you want to see? When a, a researcher comes in and says, well, I really want this series for my dissertation, yeah, he can put out a, a FOIA or an MDR, and it might take who knows. Yes. Or he can talk to our person and say, where is this in the 25-year program? Where is it in our process? And we're going to do everything we can to speed it along. Will you get every page? Maybe not. Maybe not. We may not be able to convince certain agencies with limited resources to come in and give this a real paragraph-by-paragraph look. But sometimes I have great success with that. Mm -hmm. Well, and it sounds, I mean, for people like me who have banged their head against the wall with the FOIA process, it sounds pretty wonderful to have at least people. The the FOIA problem you run into is in many cases you're dealing directly with agency personnel that are overworked that don't have the time to go hunting for you, that don't know the archives very well, um, and it can be incredibly frustrating. I mean, I put a FOIA request in about a decade ago with CIA, and there's not a chance I'm going to see this stuff anytime soon. And I, I have sympathy for them. I just I understand. I mean, it's it's a massive request. I'm sure they get them all the time. Uh, and it's and it's good to see that there actually are people who are, are now dedicated to to making this change. Um, 
I kind of want to wrap things up a little bit, and this could be a long wrap-up, so don't worry uh, about what you want to say. Um, so you and your team get actually to see a lot of the, the juicy new documents before the public does. I mean, you're going through all these boxes. You're seeing stuff that is, even if you're not in charge of declassifying it, you're seeing it at the very first chance it is declassified. So here, here's the chance uh, uh, to, to tell us if there are any great documents that have popped up in the last couple of months, last couple of little while that our listeners might be interested in hearing about? I wouldn't want to judge a document for someone else because for what's interesting to one person is probably the least interesting to me. I am With that not, caveat in place. <laughs> I'm not um, that historian-oriented, so it would really have to be an ass-kicker for me to want to get excited about it. But I will tell you that we have wonderful staff, and they are very historically-oriented, historic oriented and they absolutely run into things all the time just today one of my very smart staff brought me a conversation between henry kissinger and um uh the former head of syria and she said this is really kind of current but this is not of course it was back in you know 50 years ago or or whatever but how interesting is that? And so for her, that was really interesting. And she said, I know I have this stuff I have to do. She had part of the process to do. She said, but it's 40 pages. Do you think I can take the time to read it? I said, yes, <laughs> sit down, read the thing. Because, again, this is, this is what m- drives people mm-hmm. when they run into things like this. When we do special projects, when we did the uh, Kauten Forest Massacre from World War II, that was a congressional request. Find everything you can, National Archives, and uh, let's see if we can't get this declassified and released for the Polish people. So we did. And it was really interesting what we found and what we didn't find. Also, almost almost as interesting in, in its own way. Um, when we've done special projects on, say, the Pueblo and being able to release the drawings of the ship that hadn't been seen before. Mm-hmm. So that went out. There's a lot about the Pueblo that can't come out right. because of laws. But when you can get a piece out, that, that, that's really exciting. We're working on some um, Iran hostages uh, material. Like some of the other, there are legal ramifications. We can't just roll it all out, even if we think it's interesting. But there are parts we can get out, and so we're going to spotlight those as well. So that's the kind of thing. We've had um, people uh, open boxes and find out, uh, oh, wow, these are the plans for the early uh, hovercraft or flying saucers, and that made the cover of Popular Mechanics a few years back. So who knew that declassification could be so interesting? Make you famous. By God, it can. (laughs) (laughs) Look, Cheryl, we really appreciate you taking the time to talk to us here. This is amazingly fascinating. Uh, And again, Cheryl Schenberger is the director of the National Declassification Center at the National Archives. Uh, Cheryl, thank you for taking the time. You're welcome. We look forward to continuing this dialogue with you. And we'd like to know if you have any comments or questions on today's SpyCast. You can get in touch with us through email at spycast at spymuseum.org. Thank you, and we will see you next month. Listeners, we're always looking for ways to improve the N2K CyberWire network and maintain the intelligence-driven news experience that keeps you in the know on the latest developments in cybersecurity. We've launched our 2024 audience survey and would love for you to take a few minutes to share your feedback. 
And hey, there's even a chance to win a $100 Amazon gift card if you complete the survey. Visit cyberwire.com slash survey. That's cyberwire.com slash survey and share your feedback now. <laughs> 